Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Abuha. Well, Tamson and Dan read the paper on Sunday, December 1st, 2019. Is this December 1st? Yes, we are strolling into the end of the year, buddy. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, happy December. And we're joined today by some special guests. (laughs) That's right. A variety of newlyweds. It's the holiday holiday podcast. Yes, we have uh, Nico... On my right, <laughs> Granger on my right. Hi, couple number one. Noelle on my right, and Zeke on my We're right. We're all to her right. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Mom. <laughs> couple number two. Yeah, so it's uh, it's a free-for-all. It's, uh, we had uh, Thanksgiving, this being the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Of course, Sadie was with us also. Uh, but she has Zoomed back to her home front. Partly because it's the gloomiest day ever. The worst weather ever, yes. It's, it's like pouring rain. Sleeting, it's kind of icy. Very foreboding. Terrible weather for driving. Yeah. And uh, so she had to scamper. She was brave enough to uh, get when the getting is good. But these guys are in for the duration. And uh, it was a great Thanksgiving, right? Am I right about that? Yes. <laughs> really? Uh, we had company. We, oh yeah. We had uh, Nico's My brother. My brother was here with his fiance Mariah, and uh, they had Gabriel a... and Mariah. <laughs> but otherwise, uh, very you know what we've come to regard as the traditional Thanksgiving out here. Okay. Yes. But it, it was. Let me go back to the Thanksgiving. Like, only Noel understands me. For this whole group, it's only Noel who understands me, right? Noel, traditional Thanksgiving, traditional food. Traditional food. Right. Traditional pies. Traditional pies. We had apple pie. We had pumpkin pie. We had an apple cranberry pie. There you go. Pushing the envelope. Pushing the envelope. And uh, and I think there was homemade ice cream with that. Am I right about that? Correct. And of course, homemade whipped cream. But that was that was at the end of the meal. That was at the end of the meal. We had otherwise the standard. Uh, I shouldn't say standard. The traditional uh, turkey and uh, stuffing and uh, mashed potatoes and uh, what's the what's the thing that you make with the. Uh, uh, marshmallows and uh, yams. I don't casserole. make that. I've never made that. <laughs> well, what, 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 what do you call that thing? The one that was on we the right. We have a savory chipotle smoked gouda sweet potato casserole. That's what I meant. It has nothing to do with marshmallows. Yeah. Okay. No. Yeah. That's right. The uh, savory uh, smoked. <laughs> The same we smoke good at what else, the highlight. What else do you imagine we had? <laughs> I know. I think I got most of it right. There was the cranberry sauce. No, 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 no. I didn't really mean you should what? tell us. <laughs> okay. Moving right along. Anyway, we had a wonderful Thanksgiving. We did. We did. And uh, we did not do a heck of a lot of Black Friday shopping. No. We've been chilling out. Most of us did a little shopping on uh, the computer. Right. Uh, but we didn't really venture into stores. Um, and, uh, you know, it's been, uh, a good weekend. Yes. We've been, uh, hovering by the fire, literally and figuratively, and, uh, people doing their own thing to some degree. Uh, and, uh... And eating a lot. Today we had a pancake extravaganza. Sponsored mm-hmm. by Sadie. Yes. Sadie makes the best the pancakes of the feast, yes. in the universe. Right. Yeah. So that was fun, too. And then, uh, Friday, just to show that we like to get out a little bit, we went to the movies. Mm-hmm. All of us together. Yes. All famine. <laughs> and uh, Zeke uh, is uh, the guy who knows most about what we saw. What did we see, Zeke? We saw Knives Out. Knives Out with Daniel Craig. That's, you know, first of all, I should say, it's tough to find a movie everybody 
wants to see, or I should say is willing to see, because people have different tastes. And there have been uh, Thanksgivings in the past, but we had to split up at the mall, at the multiplex. But this year we found a movie, which we could all see, which is not necessarily going to be the winner for Best Picture, but yet it has enough of an appeal that all of us can go for it. And we did. And that was Knives Out. So, Zeke, could you give, us a, give the folks a sense of what Knives Out was about? Knives Out is a murder mystery. Um, With a nod to, like, the, Agatha the clue tradition, right? Oh, yeah. Sure, sure. There's, there's a lot of uh, referencing of murder mystery tropes, cliches, uh, and uh, just this kind of stylistic touches. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's, from the, it's written and directed by Ryan Johnson. And has a star-studded cast and uh, centers around the death of a patriarch of a uh, very wealthy family, um, all gathered at their, uh, you know, grand estate somewhere in the boonies. And uh, as as things go along, we find out that maybe it wasn't a suicide. Maybe there was foul play. Um, also notable in this movie are that, um, well, I guess there, there's some twists on familiar elements. So Daniel Craig plays uh, Benoit Blanc, who is a brilliant detective, uh, a kind of gentleman detective consulting for the police department, uh, has a ridiculous southern accent. It's terrible. And even though he gets a decent amount of screen time and is pretty important in the story, he really is not the protagonist. That's actually the character of uh, Marta, the uh, caretaker for this uh, recently deceased patriarch, uh, played by Ana de Armas. And uh, she's pretty great, I think. Uh, But also it just gives us a different kind of view on everything that happens. That she is a suspect, um, but is also our point of view character. Um, So there are lots of interesting little like touches and twists throughout the film that um, give you a different angle on everything that might happen in a murder mystery. Right, a lot of it is tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. And so it's not, I mean, don't go to it thinking this is a spellbinding, edge-of-your-seat murder mystery. In that I sense. Know. I think everything you just said, I think it is. I don't know. I think it's, it's not It's not a, a very, like, dour film, right? It's is not... It- it's not morbid, and it's, it's not, not dark it's not and super serious. And, uh, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of levity. There's a. It's pretty clear that a lot of the characters are meant to be taken pretty lightly. But I think that's because yeah. they're dopes. Yeah, they're dopes. Yeah. They're dopes of various kinds. You know, yeah. mean dopes and uh, helpless dopes. Um, and I think though that's that's still kind of in keeping with a lot of like murder mystery stories. I feel like you know, you look at the suspects in Agatha Christie stories. They're not exactly uh, always you know, uh, super serious character studies. They're often somewhat silly, exaggerated people. That lends to the air of fun and, and everything that goes on. Well, right. I think that's true. And some of the other uh, famous names in the movie? Well, there's Chris Evans. Mm-hmm. Um, there's uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. There's Michael Shannon. Um, Don Johnson. Don Johnson is in there. Christopher Plummer. Christopher Plummer playing the patriarch before. Yeah, yeah. So there's something for He's everybody. Yeah. It's Tony uh, Collette. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I do think I do agree with Zeke. I think there is an underlying tension there. I mean, uh, it, it's not played for Tony Collette. The film itself doesn't take itself so no, it doesn't seriously. Take it seriously. But it's not a comedy. It's a. Yeah. It, 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 the tension is sort of the unifying force behind it. And I think Agatha Christie's a good comparison. A lot of those movies 
that they, none of the films they made of Edgar Christie novels sort of play on the peccadillos of the characters. That's where they find the comedy. But at the end of the day, you are looking for who the murderer actually is. And you are here also. Yeah. And yeah. I, I also think, uh, to me, it seems like a, an especially like novel and fun twist on that sort of genre, uh, considering other things that might have happened or, or we might have done. I think like you can compare it to Murder on the Orient Express. Uh, I forget when that was, maybe like last year or two years ago, something like well, that. Well, that was a remake, but yeah. That, I mean, that was, you know, actually Agatha Christie, but also that, I think, tried kind of a similar thing in having a star-studded cast, like, revisit this type of story. Um, but I think that movie was not as strong, uh, perhaps in part because it wasn't so original, but also because it's, you know, revisiting that same material over and over again and just looking for slight variations in how we do it this time. Whereas this movie has a real, uh, novel thread in it, uh, that I think is, is very timely. I mentioned that the main character is the caretaker for the family patriarch. So, Class issues are really big in this movie. Our point of view character is someone who is helping and who is working in the big house, but uh, who is unlike all the other suspects in that they are all family members in that house, and they all have a different level of status and privilege, and that totally uh, shapes their relationship to what is happening here, you know, about how they behave as a suspect, about... Uh, what the stakes are for them and how this all turns out. Um, and I think that really, that really makes the movie great in yeah. my view. It might have just been like kind of fun and silly otherwise, but it's really interesting to see how the movie. But it's not heavy handed. No, it's not heavy handed, but like one it of the. Does, running... They don't hit you over the head with right. the, you know, we're teaching you a lesson here. But, no, yeah. no, but what are the uh, running but, games? Uh, and... It is sent in contemporary times, not a period piece. Yeah. And uh, another star of the movie is The House. That it all takes place in, which is uh, quite this uh, deluxe uh, 19th century um, kind of northern extravaganza. Yeah, and I think whoever designed the sets for this had a ball, yeah. uh, just because there's it's so dense and, and rich with lots of uh, details and, and stylistic touches here and there. Uh, and that really helps the, the visual appeal of the movie. It yeah. feels more lived in, it feels more uh, complex and full. Yeah, I think one of the, just the point of what Zeke's saying, one of the running gags of the movie relates to what Zeke's describing as a more serious point, was that we can't figure out what country this woman's from. Because every time uh, one of the family members is, is asked where she's from, they name a different country, because they keep saying we're very close to her, but then they'll say, yeah, she's from uh, Paraguay. Next family member will say she's from Uruguay. The next one will say she's from uh, San Salvador. Yeah, 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 so they never even know. So that's sort of a joke, but it's true. So, thumbs right. up. Thumbs, Thumbs up. up. Thumbs up. All right. All right. So, Tamsin, you had uh, something about Venus, or at least I pointed that out to you. Well, you know, it's kind of a uh, complex article, uh, an art article that you spied in the paper. Yes. And what it is is a story of a, another um, piece of art. Is it by somebody famous or not? Yes. And uh, it talks about a um, bronze sculpture of bathing Venus that was uh, recently in an exhibition in uh, Italy um, at the uh, Uffizi, at the Pitti Palace, uh, which is part of the Uffizi. And um, the question is, was it, uh, is it a real John Bologna or 
Is it a chunky copy a hundred years from a hundred years later after an original marble by John Bologna? And so, of course, if it's real, right, if it's a John Bologna, it's worth a lot more money than if it's not. Uh, so there's a little bit of scandal in terms of uh, it's in this exhibition as a John Bologna, but who really has proved that? Um, nobody, uh, but uh, the exhibition was planned by, a, um, by Eric Schmidt, uh, the uh, museum director, no, Ike, Ike Schmidt, uh, museum director, he happens to be a friend of Mr. Alexander Rudiger, who owns the, whose gallery is trying to sell this sculpture. Okay, so that's all, you know, it's the usual Major stuff. Is it, huh? yes, is it awkward for the museum to be, you know, making this attribution? Uh, it's in a way kind of uh, sponsoring its uh, authenticity or, you know, are they doing that? Uh, is, is that good? Is that bad? Uh, is that normal? So there's a lot of discussion about that. But the, the rest of the discussion is, you know, how do you figure out if it's real? Now, theoretically, you should be able to test things about it, okay, uh, because it's bronze. So bronze was... Uh, the bronze was cast um, in a mold that originated with a clay model, okay? So there was once clay involved, and they usually find that some bit of clay clings somewhere to the bronze. So if you can find little scraps like that, you can actually test it with thermoluminescence testing, mm -hmm. Okay, and determine how old those fragments, those microscopic fragments of clay are. And then you may know how old the sculpture is. Okay, so indeed, they had that done. And, of course, there are competing answers from different uh, labs that did that. So, you know, I would think you could analyze the bronze itself. Uh, some way to uh, figure out the composition of the bronze and see if it was typical of the foundries that John Bologna used. But I don't know. I don't know. Um, so they maybe I'm wrong about they that. Did reach a conclusion or not? They didn't really, you know, two out of three of the labs say it's within the older time period, which would make it real. Okay. But, uh, you know, it's actually signed by um, Gerhardt. It, it says on the side of it, May Feckett, Gerhardt Meyer Holmier, which means I made this. Gerhard Meyer from Stockholm. I know you're saying, well, what the heck does that have to do with John Bologna? Exactly, exactly. Well, John Bologna is the artist. He doesn't cast the bronze. At most, he makes the original clay model. Right? So and sends it to a foundry. Yeah. So he was in Florence at the time. He's working for the Medici. He's working with a bunch of foundries. Um, and so the theory is, uh, some people say this could be Gerhardt from Stockholm who lived later, lived a hundred years later and just did a copy based on this original marble. Okay. But the guy who's trying to sell it says he has found original documentation in Florence that mentions another Gerard from the north. 
and he feels it's that other Gerard who lived a hundred years earlier. And so this is what one guy says about that. The idea that a nobody from the Arctic Circle would have assisted John Bologna, who had three bronze foundries at his service and had such a prestigious commission before vanishing as a comet into nowhere, is the fruit of the wildest imagination and belies everything we know of artistic patronage of Grand Duke Ferdinando de Medici. Okay. So, and the other thing is, uh, frankly, you know, so the point is, was it made in 1597 or 1697? Frankly, in 1597, not many people signed things anyway. So that's a little weird. So, I, you know, so, so we don't know. I'm, yeah. We don't know. We don't know. But if anyone ever finds out, they stand to probably make a bunch of money. Yeah. Okay. But mainly, you can't well, trust anyone. It seems like that's not quite right. Because if they, they found out, <laughs> that's, they can only lose money in this situation. Um, you know, if there's ambiguity... Or they're certain it's the original, then like, the original guy makes money. But there's no money to be made in just simply knowing, right? And that's why there's no money to be made in knowing, and the money is in selling. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so that's why the selling will be done, and the knowing will not be done. And, uh, yeah, that's probably right. Right. Yeah, but uh, art right. world. All right. It's a tangled web. Well, speaking of selling, there are a zillion houses, or many more houses, are going to go on sale over the next few years because of baby boomers being a particular age. And therefore, there's a concern that it's going to be difficulty selling houses. But there is a solution, as Noel was going to tell us, in terms of how you might sell more expensive so houses. We're, we're back to that old article. problem. Yes. We're back to that old problem, well, right? Yeah. Well, the millennials are not interested in buying houses. No, no, no. no and no, the no. baby boomers have houses. Right. But, but they're going to, we're going to move on. We're going to pass on. Solution. Pass away. Tamsin. Tamsin. Right? Calm there down. There be all these houses. Tamsin. Tamsin. We're not interested. We have a solution. Okay. Listen to the I'm looking. I'm looking to Noel. I we weren't so, interested. So, much like I bring Hollywood glamour to Pennsylvania, um, this article is called Bringing Hollywood Glamour to Real Estate. And the gist of the article is that real estate agents are using, quote, emotionally charged, story-driven film as a way to sell homes. Um, and they're having enormous, enormous success with this, and the big... I think the big highlight from it is that there was one real estate agent who sold a home in Beverly Hills for $70 million to Marcus Persson, who is the Swedish game programmer behind Minecraft. Um, and also, supposedly, Beyonce and Jay-Z were interested in this house as well. Um, my feeling is that, I mean, they followed this one man who used to be a pharmaceutical sales rep, and that's kind of the thread through the story. And he lives in Orange County, and he sells... Like, homes between $1 million and $2 million, which is pretty expensive, but he basically, like, learned how... He, like, saw a wedding video and was like, I can do this, and he's had a lot of success selling these things. Um, but I think the bigger thing, like, the hot take, I would say, is uh, just that where there's an increasing trend, uh, this helps with, like, the increased inventory. So, like you were saying, like, there are these big, beautiful homes... And there's just more and more inventory, and they're having a tougher time selling it at the price point that they want to sell it on. So you make, so, a, but, you make a video about the house. You make a short film about the house. But I think that's How genius. is this news? But no, I don't think that. How many films I mean, have you seen about houses? I mean, it wasn't that long ago, but they said, well, what if we take pictures of the house Samson, and pose time it out, time out, on the, time out, time out. On the internet? Hold on. How many videos have you seen about houses? I, first of all, I've seen a lot of visual, virtual tours. Uh-uh. Okay. Not the question. How many videos have you seen about houses? I bet I haven't looked for okay. any. Okay, so they're making films about houses. This is a new but, thing. But why? 
I mean, I think it is like that real estate agents are finally learning about video marketing. So like to your point, it's sort of like this is a thing that has been going on in many other fields, but like real estate is now having... This is... Talk, we're talking about hiring actors, actors that sit in to act out situations with respect to the houses. They're not taking on camera and walking through and showing you a stream of the pictures of the house. So they have... So oh, they, have, yeah. they have... It's like a movie. Celebrating Thanksgiving. If that's oh, exactly yeah. what they're doing. They're celebrating Thanksgiving. They're celebrating Christmas. There are holidays and birthday celebrations so the buyer potential buyer can visualize what it's going to be like to have their family in this house to have these moments. That's what it's about. How long are the movies usually? It sounds like they're pretty they're, short. They're, they're, yeah, they're short. They're just like an advertisement. So they, are they posted like, on the real estate website? Um, I had a tough time finding them. I went on, I found this one guy's, because as you said, there's a story of like this beautiful home in like Orange County. And this woman is like playing Frank Sinatra on the piano. And her husband comes home and he walks up. And he takes a shower, and meanwhile, she's secretly pulling people into the backyard to throw a surprise birthday party. And so, and it's, I mean, it, like, truly it is, like, oh, I know, I mean, it's, it's made by somebody who is, you know, didn't quit their day job to be a filmmaker. Um, so it has a little bit of that, like, amateurish vibe. But it is, like, it's trying to, like, sell you on, like, this could be your backyard pool where you throw surprise That's birthday right. parties for your... For your husband, so and yeah, it is a. First of all, it sounds a lot like wine porn. But secondly, it's uh, yeah, I that is what you're selling when you do the house, when you sell a house. It just enhances the experience. You're asking people to visualize what their life would be like in the house, right? And they're actually acting it out for you. So somebody is making money doing this. One could only hope. Yeah. This guy says he sells a lot of houses this way. I mean, this is the kind of thing you could do. It would seem to me there would be a commercial somewhere about how you can do this on your phone quite easily. I think there's probably better and lesser product. And uh, in any event, uh, it is kind of an interesting way to market. I mean, maybe we'll see more of it. I hadn't seen it before. Right? Maybe we'll see more video marketing. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> That's my plan. That's how we're going to sell all these houses. All right. Uh, Nico, urban rowing program. Okay. So I had a piece about uh, this rowing team that's out and they practice at Flushing Meadows Corona Park in New York and the piece is basically about Sebastiana Lopez um, and it's basically talking about um, how they're giving opportunities to first generation students uh, usually in high school they come out and uh, this rowing team will come to their high school they will run a uh, not interview but like you know interview for the for the team and uh, the tryouts that's what mm -hmm. we're looking at. So, so they do tryouts, and then those who, a lot of the kids that end up trying out are five foot four, five foot two. They're uh, from families from like South America, so they are not very tall, but they're just looking for someone who's interested in the sport, who's motivated, and who would come out to a practice that would take them like an hour to get there. And it's helping them find um, places in universities and colleges. So, well, traditionally, yeah. rowing is uh, an elite kind of sport. Right. It's uh, mostly you know prep school kids uh, with uh, great educations and uh, coming from pretty great circumstances. Yeah. So uh, they talk about the rowing is usually a generation <clears throat> for. You know, kind of richer white people, basically. Right. You, know, yeah. so you like, think of rowing, you think of, uh, you know, um, Head of the Charles. Mm -hmm. You think of Cambridge, Oxford, uh, etc. You think of a very sort of elite situation. 
Yeah, so it's... Ranger like, is making a, a wrinkled face there. What, what are you thinking? Well, in the article, it's funny because they say, like, uh, that U.S. rowing says, like, 65% of women who are registered rowers with them are white. Mm-hmm. I think myself, minimum. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what that stat meant. Yeah. So what is it? Would that yeah. mean a lot or a little? I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, like, that's low, obviously. Right, yeah. The real number is like probably, like, 90%. Yeah. Um, so I think that... Uh, like, the thing is, like like Nico said, there's no guarantee these people become, you know, college rowers. Uh, in fact, the star of the piece is a coxswain. She's not mm-hmm. a rower. She's one of the people serious about. But it's interesting sort of cross-pollination culturally. And one of the people who started the organization was the benefit of a similar organization where they, you know, rose up from an you know, all-black crew to end up getting a great education. So I think it broadens their horizons, you know, gets people involved in different cultures and that's cool and i think that you know that's all for the better um also anything that gets somebody involved in sports yeah they mentioned like a lot of the kids here aren't even involved in interscholastic sports at all and i think as sports have sort of decreased in public schools it's really good to have outlets where people can try a sport especially rowing throwing school because even if you're not the best rower in the world it's a tough thing it's you know something i mean dad you're the one who's like really a big rower it's a it's a great workout also it's a different set of skills if you're not uh, if you're not doing the hand eye kind of and foot eye of soccer and uh, all the ball sports etc., it's a, a chance to do something else. You you need to know how to swim so you can survive. Yeah, yeah right. she took three times to pass the swim test. Yeah, uh, so but uh, you know. It, yeah, but I but I think that's right. I mean, I think you both said it. Um, they do talk a lot about getting into colleges, but mm-hmm. I don't think it's about getting into colleges because I don't think most of the people who are subject to the article are getting into colleges on rowing or will row in college. And no, it's more about the community. Yeah, exactly. And, community, and, and, and yeah. Granger points out they're, they're focusing on this woman, this girl's a coxswain. She's coxing a crew that's not going to win any races. No one's recruiting her. To, right. No way. But they do talk about not even so much the hand-eye coordination or the ability to participate in the sport, but the discipline to stay with it, to get up early in the morning, to get to practice every morning, to, as, as, as Nico says, the community, the being responsible for yourself, for other people, uh, to doing the hard work, because that's what rowing is, hard work. That's for the real benefit of it. I, I, I would guess it has great uh, mental health benefits as well. Yeah, yeah. she talks about uh, I think there's very, yeah. not just that, I think, uh, I think rowing can be very meditative. Uh, the combination of a repetitive action like that and breathing, um, you, is, know, you might be right, but you don't row, honey. <laughs> I've watched a lot of rowing. <laughs> yeah. All right, uh, and, and uh, that's meditative. Yeah, okay. but I will say this: in terms of uh, body type, uh, well, we live near Princeton, yeah. right? And uh, Princeton has what is it? U.S. Rowing. It, it yeah. has all kinds yeah. of teams yeah. working out there. You go into the local Whole Foods every once in a while, and uh, you can just spot. The rowers, right. these incredibly tall, fit yeah. people, uh, walking by, uh, mm-hmm. buying all the organic food, and uh, and sure enough, you'll see a little logo somewhere. USA right. Rowing, um, there is a definite. What were we gonna say? Laura? I was just gonna say that I think that also like sports have definitely taught me to like deal with certain situations. Mm-hmm. Like more than anything, swimming taught me to be like really resilient because like for one thing, swimming is really tough, and like if you're playing something challenging you're like taught you're teaching yourself to like overcome these like challenging things that it takes discipline and hard work to get through them but you can get through them and then of course like also like 
those races where you don't do so well and like learning how to like cope with like I failed but it's okay and I'll try again. Yeah, like, I'm gonna get better. Yeah. The, the yeah. big trick here is having water and having the equipment. Yeah. Yeah. That's why it's an elite sport. It's expensive stuff. Yeah. But it is. But I think and no so it's great that somebody is providing. But I think no these right. I think that's the benefit. I think that's the benefit. I think you know, if you go on in life if you have an athletic background, have a sports background, no matter how many games you won or how many games you lost. I think uh, you come to believe that it's a tremendous advantage uh, in coping with things. That's my belief, at least. So, in any event, uh, I know you've been waiting for the article about the Canadian bagel industry. So, it turns out that uh, uh, bagels are big in Canada, maybe bigger in Canada or bigger in Montreal than they are even in New York City, if that's possible. Bigger in what sense? Uh, people buy a lot of bagels. There's a tremendous no, amount no of... No one buys more bagels than people in New York. I don't know about that. A lot of New Yorkers, it's hard yeah, to compare. You don't know about it. I don't know about <laughs> it. But Tamsin doesn't know either, so we're tied. But my point is that uh, it's essential to the Montreal culture. And I will quote the New York Times. Montreal bagels have become a global culinary emblem of the city alongside smoked meat and poutine and are doughy unifiers in a majority French-speaking province buffeted by identity politics. That's what I mean. It's big. So, you know, whenever the New York Times makes a statement about Donald Trump yeah. or Joe Biden, yeah. you don't believe any of it. No, that's so that's why do you believe it about Canadian politics bagels? here? Well, because the, I, there actually is an answer to that, but I don't want to get into First politics. First of all, yeah. are they real bagels? Yes, they're very real bagels. The difference between these bagels and the kind of bagels that we see most often is that they are boiled in honey-infused water before being baked in a wood-burning oven. That's the style. Do you know why they're um, boiled in honey-infused water? Uh, I think they like the taste, but what were we going to say? No, it's probably for the color. Uh, well, the sugars in the honey will turn a nice golden color when you bake it. I gotta say, a lot of bagels are not bagels at all, and we know that from tasting them. Yeah. Right? They're not chewy. Well, they're probably not boiled. They're just round rolls. Right. But 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 not in Montreal. But not. <laughs> That's my point. Then we should go down Montreal. Actually, so, Ranger and Nico bought like bagels yeah. in uh, Brooklyn and trucked them out here. Right? They were, they were those good. Were, they those were real bagels. bagels. Yeah. yeah. Well, we were struck because we've been going to get bagels several times a week in Bogota, Colombia, and uh, with all apologies to the bagel shop in Bogota, Colombia, it's not quite the same. Like you know, no. people always talk about, there's a lot of stuff attributed to the water, but also just like, you know, understanding of the process of making the bagel that's lost in other locations. It's not just Bogota. You can get them in Heightstown, New Jersey. Eh, well, about. listen, this They're is... They're just rolls. They ain't bagels. They quote one Joseph Rosen, a humanities professor from the area, said that people... Uh, the bagel is one of the few things that bring Montrealers together, like Leonard Cohen or the Montreal Canadiens hockey team. <laughs> and what divides the city is that there are these two competing bagel manufacturers. One's called Fairmount, the other's Saint Viateur. Uh, and they all have claims to being the oldest, to being the most distinguished. It's How not did they going start? To, uh, is it two brothers who started these? No, 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 ones? no. They're not two brothers, and the one started almost 100 years ago. They don't say how they started. But I mean, but, was it was there? Did it begin in a Jewish community? Yeah, yeah. They in, have a Jewish uh, background. Montreal? Yes, Jewish background. Yes. Uh, grandfather of Mr. Schlafman, who, who owns uh, one of them, founded Fairmont after he came to Montreal from the Ukraine. Keeping Montreal bagels alive is a family imperative. Uh, yeah, it's a story like that. It's it's an immigrant story about people making bagels in the old country and came here. As to who invented bagels and you know how they came about in the old country, uh, there is a story that they were developed for a Polish king. 
No one entirely believes that. The other is that they are sort of a uh, variant of the pretzel. No one's really run that down. There are no answers to these questions. The big, actually, the debate that's uh, undertaken in this article is about environmentalism. It turns out because it's in a wood-burn oven, that the bagels are baked, there are some cinders that are emitted from the chimney. The people who live next door, uh, some of them have developed a bronchial cough, and as a result, they say that the bagel manufacturer should be shut down, uh, which is not going to happen, apparently. Uh, or they should put filters outside the chimneys. There are reasons you can't. I can't do that. We're not going to resolve that, but it feels like the... Um, the local populace is going to be siding with the bagel makers, not the environmentalists on this one. But it's interesting to me just that the bagels are such a big deal in Montreal. And it sounds like there's a lot of good eating in Montreal. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. All right, so you had uh, Feast of the Gods. Well, in the Wall Street Journal, they uh, always have a, an article titled Masterpiece, where somebody looks into some particular work of art that they love and appreciate and explains it to us this week, it's Feast of the Gods, uh, painted uh, in 1514 by Giovanni Bellini. And uh, you can, uh, I'm showing the picture around to my uh, group here. It's a picture of uh, gods in a forest, uh, you know, having a picnic. Okay, and it's a much beloved Renaissance painting down in the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. It was a gift of um, Widener, the Widener family, uh, years ago in the 40s. Um, and uh, I, I never really cared much about it myself. Mm -hmm. it, to me, it looks like, you know, puppets on a picnic. Um, but uh, it's quite interesting. Turns out it was commissioned by Alfonso d'Este, Duke of Ferrara. You remember him. He was married to Lucretia Borgia. Okay, he was quite a, um, he was a nutty guy. He used to walk around Ferrara in the nude. He also made pottery. Um, he, anyway, uh, moving right along. He commissioned a bunch of paintings from famous people like Titian, uh, and Bellini, and uh, for his Camerino, also called his Studiolo, his private gallery. Why did he have a private gallery? Because his sister Isabella had one, um, so he wanted to have one too as well. It would be in the Duke's palace, but he wouldn't have to show it to everyone, so the theme of it is actually orgies. Oh, my. Oh, my, indeed. Uh, another reason for it to be a private gallery. So I know what you're thinking, Daniel. I know what you're thinking. Bellini, famous for religious paintings, famous for pictures of the Madonna on high altars. How's he going to do an orgy? And he was very old when he did it. Um, and, in fact, uh, the um, he does he does the painting, you know, turns it in, and um, actually, uh, people may end up making changes to it, okay? First of all, the background is out of style. So he gets his court, uh, Deste gets his court painter, Dasso Dasi, to change the background a little bit, mm. put in a few ruins. Then Titian drops by with some of his paintings, which are much more orgiesque shall we say, and uh, he fixes it up a little bit because ruins are no longer stylish, so now we want, uh, you know, more trees, more landscape. But anyway, it's a fun painting. 
It's a, a group of gods and goddesses, and we know who they are because uh, Zeus is sitting next to an eagle, and that's the attribute for Zeus, right? Uh, there's another god, male god, with a trident. You guessed it, Zeke. Neptune, Poseidon. Poseidon. Ooh, look at this. Poseidon, Neptune, Steve Roman. Apollo is playing musical instrument. Yeah. And baby Dionysus, baby baby Bacchus, is actually pouring wine as a toddler out of the cast. Okay? There are also some nymphs scattered around, various female goddesses. None of them are the wives or regular consorts of the gods. They are there with others. Um, so it's quite a partay. They've had a fabulous meal. They've all kind of dozed off. And out of the forest comes another um, god, god of fertility, Priapus. Okay, And he spies nymph Lotus in there in the corner. Quite, She's quite luscious. He is attracted to her. Now, you know Priapus. He's the god of erections. Oh, of uh, course. Put, yeah. Not to put uh, too sharp a point on it. And oh, I see what you're you can, doing. yeah. He's, <laughs> he's, he's the fertility, makes sense, fertility, erections, etc. Um, so he, he um, comes out of the forest, he sees Lotus, he's attracted to her. If you look carefully at the painting, you can spy some of his attraction. Um, and he is about to have his way with her <laughs> when there's a donkey in the corner. The donkey starts braying like crazy. Hee-haw, hee-haw. All the other gods and goddesses wake up, see what Prius is, it, Priapus is up to, and start laughing hysterically. He's embarrassed. He runs away and thereafter requires all his followers to sacrifice donkeys to him on the altar. Okay. You've heard of Priapus before. Pri you know, a uh, Priap, you know, when they say on those. Can I ask a question? Are no. We're still talking about the painting. Or <laughs> yeah. yeah. We're talking about what makes the painting fun. Uh, so anyway. <laughs> You know on the commercials for ED when they say if you have an erection lasting more than four hours or four days or something like that, Go to the that's hospital. a preopic condition, preopism, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, so he's famous. All right. So anyway, so that's the story. It comes from Ovid, all right? I didn't make it up. And um, it's, uh, anyway, the point of it is you look at this painting, not much. You know the story. It comes kind of alive. And then it's even more fun how... It's been worked on by all these different people because styles in art change. It's been subject to a lot of, um, you know, scientific investigation. Uh, one of the aspects is interesting because back to Bellini, all right? Um, back to Bellini. The necklines on some of the nymphs seemed kind of strange, as if they might have been altered. So there was always this story going around that Bellini gave everybody high necklines that Alfonso um, probably said, uh, but, uh, you know, um, Mr. Bellini, this is, the theme is orgies. And then he or somebody else, he, somebody else lowered the necklines, maybe Dasso Dasi, maybe Titian. But they actually examined the pigment itself and ascertain that it, Bellini himself drew those necklines. 
That's where science and art intertwine. Okay. I can tell you're on the edge of your seat. I'm just saying, you know, that. Anyway, go to the National Gallery. Nico grabbed Look it. at this painting. Nico, you grabbed it to sort of study it with Noel or to just to take the article away from you. I don't know which it was. But Feast the, of the Gods. Yeah, Washington, okay? D.C. Little old ladies will be gathered around staring about it. They have no idea yeah. what they are looking at. Now, I, I, I just want all of the listeners at home to know that Granger is like beet red right mm-hmm. now. <laughs> yeah. All right, so the last Granger, Granger, take us home here. We have an important obituary. First of all, I don't know if that segment's making it to air. That's that's pretty scandalous, Mom. Um, so uh, Fred Cox was a place kicker during the '60s and '70s in the NFL for the Minnesota Vikings during their um, you know failed Super Bowl campaigns of the '70s in particular. And he's also the co-creator of Nerf Football. So he was, um, you know, this guy that everyone knew associated with the team. And he found that there's his partner um, who wanted to make a backyard kicking game. I thought, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll create like a really heavy ball for kids to kick so they don't lose it. And Fred Cox said to him, you know, I kick balls a lot. That's not going to work. That's going to be a lot of kids all sore legs from doing that. Uh, he means sort of the way of like having like an actual like you know bruise on their leg from kicking the ball. So he comes up with a revolutionary idea. What about a football but softer? So it's for kids. And I, oh, that's great. At the same time, uh, Parker Brothers is looking for a football version of their popular Nerf balls that they came out with the year before in 1970. And they come to me and they say, "Well, could you help us out with some sort of like you know uh, football version of our existing toy?" And they have this, like, giant box of, you know, pre-made ones that are all, like, awful, apparently. And apparently it was his insight in actually kicking a football thousands of times that led them to, you know, create the Nerf football, which is a soft football that's been super popular ever since. It's foam rubber. Yeah, it's foam rubber. They get, and um, it's like I had Nerf football growing up. Everyone yeah, had Nerf one. football is a big deal. I mean, that's why it's always shocking, because I know Fred Cox as a football player, as a kicker. He's a straight-on kicker. It was before they had soccer-style Yeah, they said the flat shoe. Right. You, like, walk up, and you swing forward, and you hope your toe didn't break. Right. And uh, But he was very successful. But it's like, it's almost as if if you're watching a game today, and you said, well, well you know, Dak Prescott, I remember, was a football player. And 25 years ago, you find out he invented, you know, something which is ubiquitous and everybody has. Say, I've forgotten completely about that guy. And he invented that, and he went, that's where he made all his money, I bet. And the answer is, that is where he made all his money. Not yeah, from football. football was a little different at the time. Like, you look at the photos, it's kind of fun to see him, like, you know, swinging straight ahead. He doesn't really look like an athlete. A lot of kickers don't, always. And I think that it, it's funny because he's just, like, this guy, like, um, there's two things he's associated with. One is the invention of Nerf football. The other one's just those Vikings teams yeah. that just, like, lost so much. But he still loved being associated with the team. And it's funny to see, like, the beginning of that's where, like, you know, sports really market the kids as their own particular product. That comes out of that era. Yeah. So that's interesting. All right. So that about wraps it up. It's uh, been great having everybody here. Yeah. It'd be great having you guys around. And, uh, you know, it's uh, the end of the weekend. It's been a great weekend. Great Thanksgiving. Great kickoff to the holidays. Great kickoff. Great nerf kickoff to the holidays. And, uh, and nobody yeah. got bruised. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so uh, until then. This is Tamsin Green and Dan Abuhoff and, and the, the crew. whole crew. The whole Say crew. goodbye, crew. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Or Tamsin Dan read the paper.